Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. The code to get CME uh, credit for t attending today or tuning in today is Y93N. It's on the wall. It's not case-specific. And just text that to the place you're supposed to text that to, and you'll get your uh, credits. We're delighted to have Stephen Atlas here today from the Mass General Hospital. He'll be introduced to us by James Stahl. There uh, was a review of his presentation and any potential conflicts were resolved. Um, James, as you know, is an associate professor of medicine and of the Dartmouth Institute, and he's our section chief for general internal medicine. Please tell us about Dr. Atlas. So uh, it's actually a great pleasure to introduce Steve. Uh, Steve and I have, uh, just a quick personal anecdote, uh, Steve and I have been uh, friends for a long time. We first met when we were uh, co-attendings on the Bigelow Teaching Service at Mass General Hospital, and uh, that's where I got first got to introduce to Steve's very dry sense of humor and uh, very much appreciated his thoughtfulness and deep insight as we uh, helped teach the residents during the, those uh, those sessions, so that was that was always a lot of fun. And um, <clears throat> but to the task at hand. So who is Steve? So Steve um, is an associate professor of medicine. And excuse me while I read because there's a lot to read here. Um, at Harvard Medical School, he is director of the practice-based research and quality improvement uh, in the division of general medicine at MGH. And he is also a practicing clinician um, as well. Um, he received his MD at Columbia and his master's uh, in public health at Harvard. Uh, he completed his training at MGH as a residency training and a fellowship in general internal medicine uh, at, uh, uh, at Harvard. And Steve has done, you know, has, I think, over 200 articles that, that he's authored directly or is an author of and has had received funding from numerous um, agencies from the government and, and some private and uh, has made major, major contributions to the field of back pain and population health and diabetes care, and, <clears throat> and currently uh, is working, focusing on how health information technology uh, can help us redesign uh, population health and primary care. So, um, I mean, I can go on and on, but I really think Steve, Steve can, uh, you know, just meeting him and listening, listening to him will speak for itself. So, Steve, I'll look you. Uh, good morning. It's a great uh, pleasure to uh, be here and to speak with you all. Uh, I've, I actually come to Dartmouth not infrequently to work with a number of folks, uh, particularly around back pain and uh, shared decision-making, though today this is something that I'm uh, going to be talking about, our work in primary care population health and what the lessons and really the challenges that we have uh, uh, been dealing with. Um, as mentioned, I do have a number of disclosures uh, that are relevant for this talk that I hope are, uh, will um, not be too big a deal. Um, the outline of today's talk is I'm going to give a brief case presentation, and uh, we'll spend a fair bit of time talking about population health, the patients that are part of that population, and really thinking a lot about attribution and in in trying to highlight to you the importance of it. We'll talk about outcome measurement and reporting. You can't do better if you don't know how you're doing and how variation and disparities at the provider and practice level really create a lot of challenges for how to measure and improve care. And then we'll use that as a basis for then talking about, well, how do you actually improve things? And we'll talk about um, some health IT aspects to it, but really I hope to focus more on sort of what things we need to do at the practice level for redesign efforts. Um, uh, in my grand rounds and probably at yours, people leave, so I always like to start with the take-home points and then we'll repeat them at the end. Um, so uh, first of all, uh, as you all know, payment reform is driving much of this change, uh, but that is, there's more experts out here. Uh, there's Elliot here, so I'm not going to be talking. That's not the focus, but clearly that's driving everything that we're talking about. I hope to argue that accurate attribution of patients at the provider practice and network level is a fundamental issue that actually is often overlooked. 
and then uh, that once you've got that, you can't fix a problem if you don't know about it, and that timely and actionable reporting is something that really matters if you want to improve care, and again, something that we still have lots of challenges in doing. And then how do you use that information to drive systems-based redesign? And hopefully arguing, though it won't take much convincing, that good technology, it, even if you have it, is necessary but not sufficient and that it's really sort of workflow redesign, which is going to be the key challenges to success. Um, so the case presentation is my institution. Uh, this is a spring day. This is the Bullfinch building, uh, designed by Bullfinch. Um, on a spring day, it does not look like that right now, and it does not, it, it's similar here. So uh, we're an academic medical center. Um, I work in our primary care network. Uh, as of the end of this past year, we have a little over 164,000 patients. We have 19 practices. We have 266 clinicians. 214 of them are physicians. We have 52 nurse practitioners, and that's growing. Right now, our nurse practitioners don't manage their own panels, but that's rapidly changing. From the hospital perspective, we account, our network accounts for roughly about 40% uh, of the admissions to the medical service. It varies about a third of our orthopedic procedures are, involve our patients. So we represent a sizable fraction of the business of the institution itself. If you're a neurosurgeon, on the other hand, we account for less than 10% of their population. So we're a quaternary institution. So for some things, you have to have a very wide catchment area probably not too dissimilar to here. Where do our patients live? We uh, geocode all of our patients on a yearly basis um, using address information that we collect through registration. And this just shows sort of where our patients reside in relationship to our practices. The practices are generally in the downtown or suburban Boston area. We have some outlying ones. And the color intensity is uh, shows that most of our patients sort of live in Boston or the immediate surrounding areas, but that, but that there's also pockets that relate to some of our practices and also where there's less patients actually relates to our competition. So a lot of this data actually that I create is of greater interest to our marketing department than to our researchers, but actually we use it for both and it's actually a, a point of support for our division. Uh, our, our population characteristics, we have data on all of our patients, and we can uh, uh, we provide this type of information on a regular basis. So, for instance, why am I talking about population health? About 60% of our patients are commercially insured, but when you actually look at capitation or sort of managed care plans, with, uh, we're at about 75%. So we've sort of, uh, sort of crossed the tipping threshold, so to speak, where really we are viewing this as something that we're now doing for all of our patients. And the concept of trying to separate out who's fee-for-service, who is capitation, really is no longer working. That's going to probably go to 85% when Medicaid becomes uh, capitated in Massachusetts, which it's supposed to do this year. So that's here. So with that as a background, we'll, uh, we'll focus on uh, some basics of population health. And uh, I really think of it as, as someone who has a degree in public health, applying the public health principles that I learned in school to the private health care system. And so we'll talk about the importance of well-defined populations, the role of surveillance, the role of prevention, and I'll show a lot of studies that we focused on about how to do that better the impact of chronic disease on health and the need to focus on that, and the key aspects of being able to measure outcomes in a reasonable, reliable, accurate, and reproducible way over time as being important. And then finally, the public health principles focus on vulnerable populations, and we've actually had a lot of interventions in that area that not just help our vulnerable populations, but also give us insights about how to uh, make it easier for all of our patients. And a lot of that, as I'll show you, leads to interventions that are outside of the traditional uh, visit-based uh, system between an individual physician and a patient. So let's talk a little bit about patient attribution. Uh, fundamentally, it's a simple concept, who's in charge? Um, it's, uh, in actual practice, it's quite simple. I can ask the patient. I can look who the patient's recently seen. Uh, in our system, there's a record where it identifies the PCP in our field. However, that field is not always accurate. Uh, actually, it can, uh, 
there's a lot of patients who have their physicians left years ago who still have their name there, but that's one spot. For me, specialists, it's actually very difficult for me to figure out in the system who my patient is seeing as a specialist and to be able to contact them if I need to. It's not clearly there. <clears throat> it's much easier if you're in a small practice network in this fee-for-service, visit-based world. There's only a couple doctors in your practice. The patient comes in. It's not too hard to figure it out. The front desk knows. It becomes much more challenging in large practice settings. So, for instance, I saw a patient yesterday who was listed as me in my huddle with my uh, nurse. They mentioned, oh, this is a patient of yours, and I had never seen them before. I had no idea who they were. Uh, they had actually gotten my, they'd been transitioned to me when another physician in my practice retired. They had missed their original appointment with me, but the system said they were mine, and if, in effect, uh, if they were accounting for, like, how good a job am I doing, um, it's hard to say that uh, you can really say that I'm responsible for this patient uh, who I've never seen. <clears throat> And so that then leads to sort of this concept of uh, patient attribution and denominators for measurement purposes. And there's a lot of interest in this retrospectively for payment and quality assessment. I'm sure you all do this, and I will describe examples of what we've done here. There's a lot of different perspectives that you have to take into, into account. So from the insurer, they really just care about who's paying their premium. If the patient is paying the premium, they're their patient, and they care about them. At the network level, for traditionally, uh, we had been focused on managed care patients. When it represented a very small percentage of our population, we really had nurses that focused on those few thousand patients. Now that it's everybody, that changes. Well, we have multiple providers, different rules. Some of them are capitated. Some of them are not. How do you do it? Fundamentally, at the practice and individual physician level, it's really who we see, who we care for. And that's the visit-based model of I'm responsible for the patient who shows up. And yet, we are now moving at my institution and others <clears throat> to panel-based payment. That the way I am going to get paid starting next year is not based on the number of visits, but on the panel that I manage. And it's now no longer who I see, but who I'm responsible for in whatever framework. And that sort of becomes the challenge then of say, well, how do we attribute those patients and what are the methods to do that? So there's lots of different ways to do it, and that creates some problems. <clears throat> so as I mentioned previously, sort of like, are you attributing it at the network level, at the practice level, or the individual level? It, all, it matters and it differs. What's the unit of analysis? Fundamentally for PCPs, we focus on the patient. For specialists, it's actually hard to find those uh, equivalent patients. And there's often, uh, instead of looking at the unit of analysis of the patient, it's an episode of care. It's an encounter that's used. What's the unit of measure? Are you interested in visits or are you interested in payments? And if you're interested in visits, is it any visit or is it a specific visit? Is it a visit to a specific doctor or not? Which doctors are you interested in? PCPs, specialists, what do you do about your nurse practitioners? How do you account for them? And then there's thresholds for responsibility. So in my practice, many of my patients are seen by other providers. They come in for urgent care. They may be seen twice in urgent care, once by me. They've been seen by the urgent care doctor in my practice um, most recently. In many attribution algorithms, they would be attributed to that provider because they had seen them more frequently and more recently. So there's different methods for doing that. Do you use the majority, plurality? <clears throat> so the bottom line is there's lots of different ways to do it. And um, there's lots of articles out there that say that it matters and that it matters in terms of how you attribute both quality and cost to the individual provider or to the practice. So that leads us to our personal interest in sort of how we did this uh, at Mass General. So over a decade ago, um, we were interested in starting to provide feedback to our physicians on quality of care. And um, we spoke with the physicians about it, and basically they told us that they would buy into it if we could give them a list of their patients that was accurate. I think the presumption was that we couldn't do it because at the time they were getting lists from insurers that was incredibly inaccurate. So we were, we were basically given the task of coming up with a way to do it. 
And so what we started with was a literature documenting that there's a, there's a considerable information to say that continuity of care between patients and physicians is good. That, it, uh, that, those good, that if you can establish a good relationship with a patient, that uh, there's better outcomes associated with it. So we, took, we uh, got 18 of our doctors from 10 of our practices, and we basically used an electronic tool to give them a list of every patient they had seen over the prior three years and asked them in a very gestalt way to say, is this my patient or not? And so they went through over 16,000 patients and rated them and categorized them as whether they were a patient or not. And this figure shows that there was actually quite a bit of variation among our physicians in how likely they were to say what, that the patients that they saw were theirs. And you can imagine that some of our practices were more of a um, individual sees their own patient model, and some of them were more of a collaborative model where they saw patients of whoever came in that day. So it varied a lot. And we used this information to develop an algorithm to predict that gold standard. So we used the physician view of who's my patient as the gold standard and then developed a model to predict it. And we, this is a, a schematic of that, but basically we started with the patient's registration information. That's good, but not, as I mentioned before, good enough. And we used other variables, simple ones, that were available in our system, such as the time since the last visit. How old is the patient? So older patients, we presume, are going to be coming in more frequently. Uh, and other simple variables that we had to be able to predict is that patient linked with that specific uh, uh, physician? Intrinsic in that was the knowledge that's if, that some patients weren't linked to that physician. And so we then came up with an algorithm to say, well, if, you, if we couldn't link them with a high degree of certainty to an individual physician, then we would do the next best thing and try to link them to a practice. And so we came up with an algorithm to do that. And then there's still some patients, and those were termed unlinked. And when looking at those, those are really patients in flux, people leaving the system on a regular basis. So we used that algorithm, and then we applied it to the entire network. So we, at this time, we had 13 practices. We looked at all visits for 155,000 patients over three years, and then we used this algorithm to categorize and basically found that about 60% of our patients we could link at that time to a single physician. About a third of the patients we could link to a practice, and then there was a small percentage where neither. When we looked at variation among individual physicians and uh, practices, there was wide variation, as I showed. It was mimicking what we had shown previously. The other thing that this figure shows is that uh, this connectedness between patients and physicians does matter. We recreated the data showing that continuity of care matters. So for instance, this is some data around ethnicity. So basically, if you were a white patient, you were much more likely in our network to be connected to a specific physician than if you were a racial or an ethnic minority. And that connection actually mattered. So this was breast cancer screening by ethnicity, saying that there were minor differences among uh, ethnicity based on their connectedness, but you were much more likely to get your breast cancer screening done, not surprisingly, if you were connected well to a physician versus not. So we've continued to do patient attribution over time. We do this on a yearly basis. We've done, uh, we're about to do our 13th year of this. And um, this gives us a great snapshot into our network and how it looks. So, uh, so you can see that uh, here that the size of our network actually was decreasing over time, that in effect we were a, a complete network. We were sort of mature, and our aging wasn't getting adequately replaced. Uh, as we started moving, start, we started re re realizing that we were moving into a panel base where the number of patients mattered, we've started to increase. Before uh, efforts to actually increase the size of the network. But before we did that, uh, this data about connectedness was actually used by the network to really try to increase the percentage of patients that were connected as a way to achieve better outcome. And you can see sort of that decrease in time. And also then finally you can look at sort of flux in our network has actually um, stayed the same or actually gone down a little bit. We're a fairly stable network. So this is the type of data that we can use not just for research purposes, but actually becomes really important in terms of operational issues for how do we think about developing our network over time.
So with that background, um, we can talk a little bit now about sort of performance measures and the principles around the performance measurement really focused on population-based payment models. And uh, you can argue that this is a fundamental aspect, that if you really want to improve care, you have to be able to measure how you're doing at, um, for care, health, cost reasons, however you wish. And that also it's, it gets past being able to measure a thing or two. You have to measure across a wide continuum of care, a full range of outcomes of care that matter over time, providers and settings that are meaningful. And this is different than what we had been doing previously in fee-for-service, where um, we're now much more focused on outcomes rather than uh, evaluating process measures than were traditionally what we were initially doing in uh, a more fee-for-service model. And then, of course, the key aspect to this is incentivizing improvement. Um, the data is only good if you can use it to identify areas for improvement. Uh, whether it be quality, whether it be the patient's perception of their quality, their experience, or cost. A digression, um, uh, there's the outcomes hierarchy about sort of saying, well, what are um, the outcomes that matter in a value-based model? Um, this is by Porter. There's others who've talked about this. And one of the challenges is that um, I'll acknowledge that most of what we're going to be talking about in terms of outcomes from here on out are sort of tier three things. We are not going to be able to measure at my, at an individual physician level, survival differences or things like that. And it's good to reflect on sort of what are the outcomes that are of value and really, as I'll show you, how far we can be from it. <clears throat> Performance reporting is out there. I've, uh, in preparing this talk, I went to the Dartmouth website and um, found this about saying that, uh, in fact, you're a better hospital than mine. Um, and uh, actually, when I tried to look at sort of what was the measurement that was the basis for that, I couldn't find it on the website. But, uh, but you all are better than we are. Um, <laughs> On the, there's also, this is used for marketing, so uh, the University of Utah Health System actually makes a big point of publishing quality of care on its physicians, and this is just a screen page of it. They rate all of their doctors, both uh, uh, generalists as well as specialists, uh, using uh, patient experience data. And it's hard to see down here, but for this physician I found online, he, they actually, this was from November of 2017, he had uh, poor communication skills, was actually identified on the website for this doctor. I didn't show the doctor's picture. So they're really putting it out there. This is here. Um, this type of information actually is relevant, so if you want to be a patient-centered medical home certified by NCQA, there's a whole bunch of standards that you have to follow. One of those is for performance reporting and improvement, and they actually go into details about what they are, the different measures uh, of process, outcomes. There's a big emphasis on uh, patient experience of care, and there's also the statement of not just measuring it, but that you actually need to report it to your physicians and practice leaders. So our experience with this um, started with an effort around internal reporting. This was, no, we are not showing, what I'm going to show you is not something that we show the public, but it's what we show our doctors, our practices, and our network leaders. And we developed reports at both the individual physician level as well as at the practice level. And we look at all patients. We don't try to differentiate which type of insurance they have. Uh, we take them all together using the models that we've developed. And we've looked at a range of different outcomes, of different domains, including productivity, uh, demographics. I'll show you about who the patients are and how it differs among physicians, as well as quality measures. Uh, we survey our patients. We do HEDIS-type prevention and chronic disease measures. And we also look at resource utilization. And this is just a screenshot of what our quality page looks like, showing data. And I'll go into this in a minute. But I just want to highlight that there's a link here that I'll talk about later about saying, how do you get to actionable information? So we'll come back to that. So if we send our, our physicians an email, if you click on there's a link on that email. If you click on it, you get taken to this page. As said, there's both, uh, this is a 
uh, physician level report, there's also reports that at the practice level. And so the physician will see the number of patients that they have. They will see both their MD-linked patients using that algorithm, as well as these other patients, like my patient who has my name but has never seen me. When we actually report on the quality measures, we're only reporting on these MD-linked patients. So they can't say, well, I can't come back and complain saying, well, I never saw that patient. How can you hold me accountable? We present information on productivity, FTEs, visits per FTE, and now increasingly panel per FTE. And we also benchmark. Our benchmark is we compare you to the network average. Uh, and that information uh, hasn't been important, but actually now is becoming increasingly important. Um, this is a web-based tool that we created with business software within our MGPO. So you come the, if you then go at the panel bar and you go to the next link, which is demographics, we actually want to show physicians their information about their patients and details about how their patients look compared to the network average. Because what our physicians say is that my outcomes are different because my patients are different. So we want to be explicit and say, here's the data that actually compares that. And so, for instance, this, for this physician, and this is a real physician from our network, his patients really are different. He works in one of our community health centers, and he has basically a Hispanic-speaking population. They, uh, and that is dramatically different. Now, we don't risk-adjust. We, and uh, because we don't want to risk adjust away differences, and we'll come back to the importance of that in a minute. And to overcome that, we actually want to be able to be explicit in saying how your patients differ from the average physician. So if you then go on to the next bar, which is the main bar, which is sort of the outcomes data. And as mentioned, there's both patient experience data, quality of care, the HEDIS measures, and resource utilization. This is a, a screenshot of the patient experience survey data. For, this is for an individual. This is for a practice, excuse me. And there are different composite measures that are listed for access, communication, office staff. We use CAPS in our system. And what we want to compare is sort of how different are you. So we're basically, the main point of this is showing how you compare, how your practice compares to the network average. Less than is bad. If it's red, it means that it's statistically significant. Green is good if it's, uh, and you're statistically above the average. We provide your actual data point that goes into that. We give you your sample size. We also provide the, uh, the benchmark for the practice. And if there's data on a national benchmark, we actually list it as well at 90th percentile, sort of aspirational goals. And if you click on uh, these bars, you can actually then see within the composite what are the questions that make up that composite. So this is the quality uh, screenshot. So these are, we use um, uh, composites for chronic disease and prevention. Uh, this highlights what are the specifics for the prevention, which are cancer screening, breast cervical, and colorectal. So this is an example where if you came in and you saw that your prevention screening was low, you could then drill down and say, well, what is it about um, that is accounting for it? So for this physician, their, um, their low rating is, in fact, cervical cancer screening. And that would then be, hopefully, an area for, uh, for emphasis and effort. You can also, in this drill down, if you were to click on the link, you can then actually get to comparative data to actually compare you to your peers. So this is a chronic disease measure, diabetes, whether the patient's A1C, their most recent in the last year, is less than 9. And this is comparing, these are actually our real practice names, and you actually, we show, at, this is for a practice leader report, how your practice would, be, would compare to your peers. For the individual physician, I'm not showing one of those, it will actually list the, uh, the, your name and all the colleagues in your practice and how you rank. We got agreement from the physicians that, we, that they would allow for discussion, and we have discussions in my practice about what it means when my scores are better or worse than some of my colleagues and why that may be. And that's actually been um, something that uh, physicians agreed to, and, um, 
Uh, and I think a lot of it was the feeling that this was data that they believed, that it was confidential, and it was provided in a setting where, um, where they could talk about it. <clears throat> so we've examined sort of how this is done. So we, our initial release of this data was in 2013. We released it on a six-month basis. And in, when we initially looked at um, physicians actually are interested in this data. About uh, eight, we, the, the tool actually picks up who you are uh, and picks up um, your utilization. So 82% of our physicians looked at the data within 30 days, and they looked at it multiple times. Uh, we surveyed physicians around sort of their, what they thought about it. Uh, we actually had a pretty good response rate, 67%. And, um, and we asked them about different aspects of it, that most of them viewed it as the report was easy to access and easy to navigate. Hopefully I've shown you an example of why that would be. Um, it was interesting that uh, most of them thought that the interpretation was relatively straightforward, but maybe not as straightforward as, uh, as I would have expected. And actually, this type of information led us to go back to actually do some teaching around, well, what does this mean? This was something, this was our first release. This was something that our physicians really weren't used to seeing, and there needed to be some context, and that highlighted it. But the information was useful. It was informative, and key was that two-thirds said that it would help identify areas of focus. I got a report initially um, that showed that my uh, breast cancer screening rate in my female patients wasn't so good. That was information that I took to heart. I was otherwise doing pretty well. I like doing well. And I took that on as a task for when uh, I saw my patients. So I want, uh, before I leave this, I want to just briefly, for our specialists, say um, attribution is something that also matters for specialists. It's an um, increasingly important issue, but it's a lot more complex. All of my 200 PCPs basically do the same thing. If you're a cardiologist, you can be a general cardiologist, you can be a specialty within cardiology, you can even be a subspecialist. And how do you attribute at that level becomes actually a heck of a lot more complex. What we've done is to focus denominator as being an encounter and not the patient for our cardiologists. And we came up with what we call clinically adjusted patient doctor years, which is what we take as encounters to specialists, we attribute them to specific providers over a one-year period. We group the providers as best we can, and we look right now at resource utilization associated with that encounter. And we sum that, in, that utilization at the doctor level, and here we actually do risk adjustment. Um, and we risk adjust for everything that we have in our clinical data systems. And as a screenshot, this is not as um, well-developed as what I showed you before. We've been doing this in primary care a lot longer. But this is our version one for specialists. This is data for endocrine associates. So this is our diabetes doctors. These are the different doctors listed. And basically, there's imaging labs, ED visits, um, uh, CAP scores. This is patient survey data. And it's all variation data adjusted data, variation, how your data compares to the average. And basically, you can be at the average, you can be above the average, you can be below the average, as well as whether they are statistically significant. Uh, this is version one, but it's now starting the same process. It's not as straightforward or as intuitive as what it is for our primary care doctors, but that's what's coming for our specialists as well. So I'd like to then turn to the last part, which is okay. So now that we have all this data, um, it's only useful if we can improve care. And I'm going to give you some examples, both positive and negative, of our experience. We'll start with some work in disparities. We'll talk about sort of the bread and butter of primary care, cancer prevention, chronic disease management, and we'll end with uh, one example that we've uh, done in our EPIC system. Um, just like I showed you uh, Dartmouth and the University of Utah, MGH also puts that, just so that you, you didn't think you were alone, we also put public reporting. And this is an example of one of our reports that's actually focused on equity of care, comparing outcomes for white and non-white patients in our network. And this isn't just data from primary care. This also includes data from specialties as well as hospitalized patients. So, um, and... 
So I'd like to start with the first, this was one of the first slides that I showed when this is data from 2005, where I was at a meeting presenting this data to some folks in our network. And this was what I had shown you previously. This is breast cancer screening rates stratified, uh, excuse me, cancer breast cer uh, cervical as well as colorectal stratified by ethnicity. And uh, we are uh, basically showing that, um, uh, that rates were actually comparable among, as I said, patients who were linked to a specific physician. But there was a, um, uh, one of the physicians in the audience was from our health center that cares for, as I said, all of the, the vast majority of our Hispanic patients and sort of came up to me afterwards and said, you know, this really sucks that uh, our patients are 20 absolute percentage points lower in colorectal cancer screening, and actually wanted to do something about it. So uh, they actually, we worked with them and found some resources to take a patient navigator program that had been a pilot for breast cancer, and we extended it in that health center to uh, navigate for colorectal cancer screening, and we actually did a randomized trial. We randomized patients to navigation or usual care and showed that over a nine-month intervention period that we could increase the rates of colorectal cancer screening in this population. The thing that I'd also like to point out is that most of those tests were colonoscopy. So one of the things that we asked them was, well, they had been traditionally doing uh, fecal occult blood testing at that time in their practice, but the network's gold standard was colonoscopy. And they wanted us to make sure that if we were going to do it with our, that they were applying, that we weren't giving them sort of second-rate screening. So in fact, that not only did we increase screening, but we, most of that screening and the benefit was associated with actually doing colonoscopies, showing that this was actionable data that could be used. It was popular enough that the hospital sustained it, and in fact, we continue to have this program. We use a part-time bilateral, bilingual English-Spanish interpreter. We also have interpreters at the health center who've been trained in navigation. And actually, this figure shows that this disparity in this health center that started is actually not only narrowed, but we've actually eliminated it with the long-term use of such a program. In fact, though, we've created a new disparity that because not all of our Hispanic patients are in this one health center, and that was where this program was located, is that uh, by looking at, uh, at Hispanic patients, we've actually created a disparity, whereas if you're not in that practice, you're actually doing worse in terms of, uh, of colorectal cancer screening. So we, in effect, solved one problem and created a new one. So um, let's talk a little bit more about preventive cancer screening at sort of a network level. So we know that appropriate screening can decrease deaths, but there's also good data to say that even with our current systems, it's suboptimal. So this is national data over time showing that uh, cervical cancer screening rates are actually going down, breast cancer screening rates are stable, and colon cancer screening rates, while they're going up, that still nationally it's now probably, I think it's about 65% of patients are up to date with screening. So despite um, what we should do, there's still uh, uh, evidence that we don't do it. So we were interested in saying, well, how could we use our experience with linkage, knowing that patients who weren't tightly linked to a doctor weren't getting, having the same outcomes. So we, in effect, created a data, uh, an intervention system that was designed to take um, what we currently have in, in visit-based reminders, and we all have those, and if the patient shows up, it tells you what to do. But we wanted to add um, to that, that there wasn't um, a way to uniformly address people who weren't coming in for appointments. Um, and there's uh, data, this is some data nationally saying that provider surveys that, uh, that showing that uh, physicians don't have a lot of supports in their practices, and these are patient-centered medical homes or not. There's a lot of um, gaps in sort of what supports the doctor has to make it easy to do the right thing. And even if you're doing the right thing, uh, Anna Tostason has shown data saying that, well, if you're doing a screening test and, it's, and you find an abnormality and it, you're not following up 100% of them, that screening test wasn't very effective. And showing that by type of cancer and by uh, type of, uh, in, by different institutions, that we're not necessarily getting to that 100% for all of our cancers. So showing a gap there. 
So I mentioned previously about sort of how do you make actionable information. So in our quality report, there was a link. And our, we, uh, we, in our old EHR, we did not have any population health capacities in it. So in effect, uh, with some funding from the government, uh, we created a, uh, a population health registry tool. And actually, when we created it, you can now, so if you want to identify that your cancer screening rates are low, there's actually a tool where you can then link from that report directly into, this is my, uh, this was my home page, uh, if I link to it, where I could then go and click on this and go to data on my patients who were overdue for cancer screening. And this is just a screenshot of what that would look like, or what it does look like, that it would show my patients, it would show um, information of when they were next seen. So if they had an upcoming appointment, I wouldn't necessarily, I could wait for that appointment. It also would show for breast, cervical, and cancer who's overdue. If they have scheduled tests or completed tests, it's sort of grayed out. And there was also in the tool at the time different ways to connect with the patient to make things actionable. So I could send them a letter if they didn't have an appointment to get the test done, either uh, scheduling appointment with me or calling radiology directly for a mammogram, for instance. So what are the attributes of an IT system that, I, that would be sort of that you would need for this type of activity? So as mentioned, you need to be able to identify, you need algorithms that are accurate that identify patients who really are overdue for breast cancer screening, for instance, and not uh, uh, falsely uh, telling you about that. <clears throat> as mentioned, you need attribution. Who's going to take action on, the, uh, on that information? And then you need outreach. And many of our systems really lack this outreach function, whether they're automated reminders at the patient. Do you send letters, phone calls, text messages, emails? How do you reach out? Or there may be provider-dependent tasks that, uh, that you do. These systems need active surveillance. We need to be tracking, looking on a regular basis, a real-time basis about how you're doing. And then there's contact management. You have to then be able to say who's responsible for that specific test in terms of staff or um, physicians. So we've done some studies looking at this type of tool, this electronic registry, to supplement what we are doing in our visit-based reminders. So the visit-based reminder is there. We've added <clears throat> this population-based tool. And the first tool that we, the first intervention study that we did was around breast cancer. And basically, we uh, had a tool that uh, provided email links uh, to physicians about their patients who are overdue for breast cancer screening. We sent it one time, and if the doctor wanted, they could click on a link and the patient got a letter. <clears throat> and what we showed was, in fact, that breast cancer screening rates went up. And th those rates remained high, actually, for three years out. So this was a one-time intervention, implying that we weren't just speeding up the process, but we were, in fact, identifying patients who wouldn't have otherwise been captured in our visit-based system. We extended this to doing automated screen, uh, screening for breast, cervical, and cancer. A 62-year-old woman, it's not just whether they're up-to-date on breast cancer screening. They may be eligible for, they may be due for a pap smear and a colonoscopy. Let's deal with all of them. Let's be patient-centered. And we designed a system basically saying that we were going to take what we had currently done, which was give the physician a list, versus uh, doing it fully automated. Don't involve the physician. And not surprisingly, what we showed was that there were similar rates of screening completion, whether the physician was involved or not. A, a different story is that the physicians actually still like getting the list, but they, they, I don't think they really did. Um, then turning, so okay, now we have this IT system. It actually works. It actually does better than our visit base. Well, what can we do with team? based systems. So uh, we looked back at our navigator programs and said, well, could we add navigation to this IT system to focus on our vulnerable populations? And so what we did was a randomized study to say among patients who are non-English speaking in our network, they were overdue for multiple tests, could we use a navigator across all our practices to increase screening rates? And in fact, we showed that for any screening and for both breast, cervical, and cancer in a randomized study that we could actually increase screening rates 
in these vulnerable populations beyond what just this automated IT background system and visit-based reminders were doing. Most recently, we've used the navigators to address lung cancer screening. We're supposed to do shared decision-making. I'm not great at doing shit. Well, I should be great. I, uh, I do some work in shared decision-making, but many of our physicians don't have the time to do it. And so how could we use navigators, in effect, to prime patients? These were patients in our community health centers to be able to talk with patients in advance of seeing the, the physician, to be able to make it easier for the doctor to identify patients who are eligible for lung cancer screening and get it done. And we did a randomized study, uh, and just it's actually in press right now, in effect showing that such a program would increase the rates of lung cancer screening test completion compared to usual care. Again, workflow redesign, new personnel to make it easier for our physicians to do the right thing. Before I leave um, uh, cancer screening, I just want to come back to Anna's study showing that we don't, um, that the benefits of screening can only be realized if we get timely follow-up on everyone. And this is an example where PCPs aren't enough. For us to get cancer screening tests, so a colonoscopy, I have to collaborate with the GI provider. Who's responsible for what? We live in these different silos, and how do we create IT systems and workflow that address those? So with um, colleagues both here at Dartmouth as well at the Brigham, we've thought about how you could develop sort of these multi-level integrated care systems to be able to do this and what would be involved in doing follow-up of abnormal screening for breast, cervical, and lung cancer at your institution. And what would it involve? Things like at the system level, what would the IT aspects need to be? At the team level, what coordination would have to occur within primary care? And how would we have to interact with specialists? And what would be the responsibilities? As well as providing tools within the EHR at the individual doctor and patient level to make it easy. So we're hoping that we can fund such studies to be able to really start integrating this and move this out of just being in these silos. So I'd like to just end with um, a little bit on chronic disease management. So we had this IT system that we developed for cancer screening. We uh, have adapted it for <clears throat> chronic diseases. And what we were interested, again, is in sort of how to use this um, in workflow. So we were interested in centralized versus decentralized teams, and specifically the concept of creating population health coordinators at the network level and comparing their um, outcomes to training uh, personnel within the practices. And so the PHCs were doing, were non-clinical staff. They worked centrally, but they worked in, with individual practices. They would come to meet with me. They would huddle with me. They would go over a list of my patients who were diabetics who were overdue for um, uh, for um, uh, screening test or not at goal. Uh, and they would then perform administrative tasks such as scheduling, ordering over do lab tests, getting outside data to uh, supplement. And we compared this to having individuals within the practices do this. We had some money from the network to do a pilot, and we did um, a non-randomized observational study where we had enough resources to have eight intervention practices with the central team and 10 control practices. And we did a six-month before and after study looking at differences and differences over time. <clears throat> and what we found, these are, this is some data on the outcomes, the proportion of patients at goal at the start of the study uh, and at the end of the study for different measures. And basically what we showed was that whether you had central coordinators or uh, office staff doing it, we could increase screening rates with, with one exception, but that the central team actually on all measures did better, and these differences were all statistically significant. And actually this data then became justification for expanding this pilot. So we now have these population health coordinators that is a central program that work with each of our practices. 
So I'd just like to then end with um, um, so, some of our most recent work. This is our first work uh, using Epic. Um, I shouldn't say Epic, our new healthcare uh, IT tool. And what we are interested in is we're collaborating with um, some cardiologists. We're starting to work together where we know that um, uh, AF increases your risk of stroke. We know that oral anticoagulants are effective in lowering that risk, but there's good data to say that it appears that physicians underprescribe it to people who are at risk. And this is data from our network over time. We created an algorithm to identify these patients, saying that, in fact, about 60% of our primary care population who appear to be eligible for uh, anticoagulation are getting it. And with the introduction of direct oral anticoagulants that are becoming more common, the rate isn't going up. It's just it's replacing warfarin. And in fact, even for patients who are at high risk for stroke, uh, high chads vas scores, we're only getting about two-thirds. So we designed an intervention to say, could we come up with an automated algorithm to alert physicians to their patients with AF at increased stroke risk, who our system said were not on oral anticoagulants. So we designed a study. We randomized patients of 175 physicians to this notification or usual care. The bottom line is it didn't work. In fact, almost no patients in either the notification or usual care arm were put on an oral anticoagulant over the next at three-month follow-up from the intervention. Um, didn't work. We surveyed physicians to find out what happened. And in fact, what we found was that many, the, our algorithm wasn't so good. Many physicians said that um, this wasn't real AF. They had transient AF. They said they didn't have AF. Most of the ones who said they didn't have AF, there was, if you went into the record, there was a documentation at some point that the, they had AF, but the physician just didn't remember it. Um, so why didn't it work? So our algorithm identified patients where the risks and benefits were controversial. So these transient, we don't know transient AF what we should do. Um, our, uh, our IT system wasn't sufficient. We asked physicians, they really felt their decision to use oral anticoagulants were appropriate, that, uh, that they were aware that these patients weren't on oral anticoagulants, and they cited that their risk of stroke was lower or their bleed risk was higher than what our algorithm our, uh, would otherwise predict, and they actually gave lots of reasons why they weren't doing it. The other thing that we found was that um, a third of our primary care doctors said, I'm, it ain't me. These patients are managed by a cardiologist, and our intervention didn't involve the cardiologist. So um, again, sort of it's not just focusing in my narrow silo, that if you want to start doing this more broadly, you have to involve the, patient, the physicians, the caregivers, who are actually responsible, getting back to that attribution. So that highlights the many challenges that we still have. So I think of it as that we all live in sort of one foot in the fee-for-service world, 25% of our patients now, 75% in capitation. You know, it's a pretty unstable place to be. Uh, our movement is treat them all as capitation. Um, we have an IT system that's designed for visit-based fee-for-service world. Uh, it's not really designed. It was not created to do population health management. We're spending, I know you all are spending a lot of time. How do you retrofit this? It's a time-consuming, inefficient thing. Our practices are designed for the visit-based fee-for-service world as well. And we really need to do a lot more to focus on how do we retrain staff. And as mentioned, it may be new staff, such as the population health coordinators, that will be the solution. And then finally, um, we really need IT systems and workflow that starts integrating our broader goal. So get, getting out of the, the just what's due for primary care, what's due for GI or cardiology, but how do we identify and work across those? So ending sort of where I said that accurate attribution is important. You got to measure. You got to be able to provide actionable information. You need good system redesign. Good technology or even bad technology is not sufficient. That really, I think most of our efforts is going to be how do we redefine the work that we as teams do. And I think that. Um, uh, for Elliot, that um, that payment reform is going to continue to drive 
the pace at which we need to do this. Uh, and there's a lot of uncertainty in that, but I think our institution feels like we ain't going back and that the only thing is to move forward and to move forward quickly. I'd just like to acknowledge that a lot of the data that I presented, this is not just me. We have a large group who's been interested in this. I have some wonderful colleagues uh, and staff, and we've received uh, funding from uh, both uh, government sources, industry, and there's actually been a lot of support from our network for this type of work, because you can see that it's not, it's research actually changing care. So with that, um, I'll end, we have a few minutes, but thank you very much for your attention and inviting me out. I'm, I sort of have two questions, and I think I can connect them together. I'm interested in your decision not to risk at attribute, and I suspect in your system that's controversial, particularly in the area of physician compensation. So I'm really interested also in how you tackle the issue of panel size, um, RVUs, quality measures, and how that is related to decisions about physician compensation. Not, uh, <laughs> Sorry. So you didn't get, so you, you really just you gave me a softball one to start with. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I think, um, I think for us in many systems, it's been a gradual process. Um, one of the things, so we have been doing this, as you can see, for many years, providing this information. And I promised you five years ago at my institution that this was just for informational purposes. That this is, but you came back to me immediately saying that that's going to change. And we're now in that process of changing it. At the time, for informational purposes, we did not want to risk adjust because we didn't want to risk adjust a way to say, in effect, that, um, that if you were in a health center caring for vulnerable, really hard patients to manage, that we're going to sort of say, um, we're going to give you a pass on that and accept that there's differences that we're going to adjust away and say it's okay. Um, that, so for, in, for that purpose, it's really highlighted uh, to the institution disparities in care. And that disparities in care uh, uh, on our website has really driven the institution to change how it thinks about sort of um, uh, what is a one good standard of care for MGH. So that, I think, physicians have bought into um, now the transition to going to panel pace management, that's a whole different thing. And so now we are in the process, we're adjusting for case mix, uh, medical case mix in our panel adjustment. We have not, we, uh, we're supposed to start, I'm supposed to start, right now we're in a transition year, right next year I'm going to start getting paid on my risk adjusted panel. The problem with that is they've not yet gotten to sort of how do you risk adjust for um, differences in patient characteristics that are not medical, language, ethnicity, uh, insurance issues, income, education. And um, we we're told that uh, we're going to address that. But we're not going to address it in version one. So Bob, version uh, so thank you very much for this uh, presentation. Uh, so as we're uh, paying more and more attention to population health, we recognize that healthcare is a minor driver of population health in the community. So I'm, I'm curious, what are you guys doing with respect to the social determinants of health, and you know what what uh, responsibility do you think you have as a healthcare system? to address those social determinants of health above and beyond adjusting for compensation? Uh, and, uh, and, and are you collaborating with other sectors in your community to address those? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, that's, I would, if I had had two hours, that would, I would, there's things that I didn't put in the talk. And we actually have spent, so I um, work with some colleagues in diabetes who where there clearly are diabetics in our network where we're doing everything that we can medically for them. But there are food issues, there's economic issues, there's affordability of these expensive medications um, that really I can't address. And so we are creating sort of programs to start addressing some of these uh, unmet 
uh, social needs. We're also starting to look at our communities and starting to identify community resources. Some of our geocoding data, we've been doing some work to identify, uh, we're doing some work to identify, for instance, if you live in a community where there aren't healthy food choices, um, your, uh, how do your diabetes outcomes look? And not surprisingly, um, they're not as good. Uh, so we're now creating systems to start identifying those things, but um, that's, you know, I think a, a, a very fertile area for research because we actually don't know how to integrate that. Okay, so it's, it's 9 o'clock, and, and Catherine, if you can keep it brief, but otherwise we'll try people coming down. Here. Still brief. Um, you know, one of the things we're all dealing with is an aging population, and as a geriatrician, I'm not so much interested in risk adjustment on age, but different outcomes, because a lot of these quote-unquote chronic disease outcomes really are based on heinous measures that go up to like 75, and what are, you, what are your thoughts about that? Um. So the simple is, is um, well, I, the higher, the if you look at the you know Porter mechanism of hierarchy, I said right up front that we are sort of at the bottom of those tiers. What you're talking about is how do we step up, and um, the answer is, is I have enough trouble day to day just doing what, just keeping this data systems going for what we currently have. Um, the, the, the challenge, the challenge is, is that um, we need to get a hell of a lot better at measuring outcomes. And those things